0: What happens if you perceive a conflict among the clients? How does that get dealt with?
1: You've got to have those tough conversations. When I was first hired a city attorney in Norman, that was one of the first conversations I had with our city manager is, look, I work for you, but if there's a situation where you're not wanting to do something that council has directed us to do, I'm going to side with council. That is the direction that i have to go in you know when representing the organization
2: you're listening to omag all access a podcast about all things affecting municipalities in oklahoma hosted by omag associate general counsel jeff bryant
0: this is uh, jeff bryant with uh... Oklahoma Municipal Assurance Group. And we're back to talk a little bit on our podcast series on municipal ethics and how that relates to municipal attorneys. Who we have with us today is uh, Catherine Walker. Catherine Walker has been with the city attorney's office in the city of Norman for over 15 years. And I think she served actually as the city attorney in the last uh, three to four years. It might seem like longer than that for her. I know they've had a little bit of a uh, several challenges that the cities had to go through with COVID and the various issues that are facing cities really around the state these days. But uh, Catherine recently spoke at the uh, Oklahoma Municipal League's annual conference about municipal attorney ethics and how that uh, interrelates between elected officials and city councils. And so I asked her if she would maybe sit down with us and talk through some of those issues with us. Good morning, Catherine. How are you today?
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well.
0: So what exactly, as we kind of talk about this, what exactly does a municipal attorney do? How would you capsulize
1: that? A little bit of everything. You know, municipal attorneys are required to, to practice in a lot of areas. The old municipal attorney joke is uh, jack of all trades, master of none. But that's really uh, self-deprecating. Uh, but it, However, it does reflect, I think, the variety of things we work on. So you can't be a specialist in any one area in municipal law. You do have to become a jack of all trades and hopefully a master of many. That's the goal of all of our educational opportunities.
0: And I thought that was really interesting. Of course, I, I practiced municipal law for a number of years as well. But, you know, some of the areas that uh, city attorneys get involved in are pretty varied. I mean, it, uh, public finance, uh, they, well, of course, land use law, zoning. But there's a criminal law aspect to that as well. Uh, employment issues. Uh, are there other areas that come to mind to you? I, this, the breadth of this is uh, pretty amazing to me.
1: Sure. Um, Most city attorney's offices are operating in all levels of court. So you might have an action in your own municipal court where that is criminal prosecution or code enforcement actions. You could be in district court litigating civil issues or criminal appeals. You could be in uh, federal court litigating federal issues, police use of force issues, things like that. It really can take you into a lot of different areas of the law and adopt a lot of different areas of practice. Of course, new in 2020 we've added pandemic law to our expertise Uh, who thought we would have been reading jacobson versus massachusetts back in march of 2020 uh (laughs) trying to figure out what do we do with this this thing they call the coronavirus but that's a great example of as as the law changes or as new areas uh develop we we have an obligation to learn about those and and try to become experts in those for our client
0: so because of the the breadth of areas of the law that are touched by cities and towns, kind of what we've talked about there. How important is it to... Uh To know your limits or to actually uh, be able to reach out and engage and collaborate with other city attorneys or or other areas of specialty, for example.
1: It's critical to your practice. You don't ever want to get far out on an issue where you don't have the knowledge or the expertise and try to guess and, and advise your client. You want to develop the expertise that you can, but you also need to know when you need to call on others to help. Finance, public finance issues are a great example of this. Most cities use outside bond counsel. And we do that for a good reason. That is an area of expertise where you have to be really uh, knowledgeable of the rules, the SEC rules and other you know state and constitutional issues. And so you need to know when to lean on those experts to advise your client. The goal here is always confident representation, but that doesn't mean you have to do all of it. You have to know when to, to bring in others and And of course, this is why we want to provide educational opportunities for our members, because on other things that may not require a specialist, we want to help you become a specialist or an expert in that area of your practice.
0: You talked a little bit about advising your client. Now, that's always an interesting area to discuss when it relates to municipal law. Who who exactly is the client, Catherine?
1: This is a question I have dwelled on. A lot in the last couple of years. Um, it seems so straightforward in law school and, you know, under the rules of professional responsibility. Of course, I'll know who my client is. Well, when you represent an organization, it may not be that clear. Obviously, your municipality is, is incorporated. It's got a board of directors, so to speak, in the city council or the elected officials. And so you have to represent them, but you're also advising your city manager, your fellow staff members. You might be advising on an employment matter that never goes to council. It's not within their purview. And so the definition of client, which is a duly authorized constituent under rule 1.13 of the rules of professional conduct, the definition of the client is going to depend a little bit on the issue. So if it's a um, issue that's within council's purview, it's a legislative issue or a policy issue that they get to act on, then they need to be the client that you keep informed and that you stay true to that direction. If it's an employee matter uh, that doesn't go to council because maybe they don't have any say so over the employee issues, that's go goes through your city manager, say you want to Treat your city manager as the client. If it's a litigation issue and you're representing a police officer who's been sued for excessive force or something else that happened in the line of duty, that police officer is your client. And so it really depends on on the nature of the issue at hand. And that's something that is much more nuanced than you might think. But it's something that really needs to be in the forefront of your mind as you represent your cities and towns.
0: So the actual client may change depending on the topic or the particular issue. But does your job function as city attorney change depending on the client?
1: No, uh, your job function is always to serve as the chief legal officer of the city. And you're representing the city as the organization. Uh, when I talk about the client changing, it's really the name or face to the organization. And, and that depends on their authority to act in a given situation. But your duty is always to represent what's in the best interest of the city.
0: What happens if you perceive a conflict among the clients? How does that get dealt with?
1: You've got to have those tough conversations. When I was first hired a city attorney in Norman, that was one of the first conversations I had with our city manager is, look, I work for you. But if there's a situation where you're not wanting to do something that council has directed us to do, I'm going to side with council. That is direction that i have to go in you know and when representing the organization and he understood that i've had those difficult conversations with council members too there's times where i have to represent the city and and adopted ordinances that they may not like that adopted charter provisions that they may not agree with so i've had to explain my duty is to the organization and the rules require that you have those tough conversations you know it may not be what the person on the other end wants to hear but if you're straightforward up front and and you get those conversations in early, they'll usually understand the obligation you have.
0: Now, Norman fairly recently had an issue that kind of illustrated this had to do with recall. Do you want to expound on that a little bit?
1: Sure. So we had like a number of cities in the state uh, through the pandemic. We had a number of council members that were subject to recall. And when the petitions were turned in, I had several of those uh, council members asking me, can we invalidate the petitions for this reason? Well, what they were asking was not consistent with what our charter said. And so I had to have that conversation of, you know, look, in this situation, I'm representing the city as the organization. I'm upholding whatever's in the charter. That's my job. I have to uphold what's been adopted by council and what's been adopted by the voters, even if the result isn't what you want. You know, they ended up retaining independent council. Uh, which was appropriate and challenging the petitions um and and of course all of that was changed by the outcome of the Enid case. That was the appropriate way I felt to handle that and to represent the city.
0: But it really underscores an important point for those practicing in the municipal law area. You know, municipal municipalities, I mean, it's really similar to a corporate law type practice. Right. I mean, cities are municipal corporations. And so, your primary allegiance is really to the corporation. And isn't that borne out in the rules of professional responsibility?
1: Yes. And uh, rule 1.13 that talks about the organization as a client. It talks about your obligation to represent that corporation. It's really just who can speak for the corporation on on a certain action. And that's this duly authorized constituents that it talks about.
0: Very good. And then sometimes you just have to encourage them to get their own attorney. Right. I remember uh, also in Norman, uh, I had an issue similar to that that related to uh, a challenge to uh, an executive session. And uh, we had a council member who was actually in the executive session who felt like the law had been violated and he wanted me to carry the banner uh, to uh, illustrate the law had been violated. Well, first off, you know, I didn't believe it had been violated, but probably more importantly and germane to our discussion here, the interest of the municipality, the municipal corporation, was to make sure that the steps that we had taken to go into executive session and the matters we had discussed were within the bounds of the law and then Since that was the action of the majority of counsel, then it was my obligation to represent that. I couldn't represent both sides of the fence. So that's really kind of what you're talking about, I would think. Yeah. A little bit more about the actual role of the city attorney. Uh, It's not just provide legal advice, but it's also uh, minimizing liability and then also uh, promote uh, compliance with the law. Right. Some examples of that maybe for our listeners?
1: Um, obviously, uh, when you're dealing with issues that come before your council, you're going to be looking at issues where there is a potential for legal liability. An example we've had recently in Norman are some zoning cases where We felt like depending on how council ruled or ultimately determined these, you know, granted these zoning applications, we may have some potential liability. And so our job is to try and reduce that as much as possible And that in a zoning matter. Of course, you're looking for fairly debatable facts on which to base the council's decision. And so those are the kind of conversations I have is here are some facts that I think are basic physical facts that are fairly debatable If you're going to get something into the record, get those kind of things into the record to limit our exposure. And so you're always looking for things like that. And that's not just in issues that go before counsel, but tort claim issues, safety training of your employees, ensuring that your sanitation truck drivers have the right license. And all those things are really aimed at reducing your potential exposure. And so that touches every area that you're going to deal in. And that's a big part of your representation.
0: Very good. This uh, issue of communication, whether some of those communications are privileged or whether they're public communications, how that interplays with the Open Records Act. That's also something that uh, I think attorneys, municipal attorneys in the back of their mind, particularly since it's a corporate practice, something they struggle with quite often.
1: Right. Uh, absolutely. And, and it is a challenge because there's always that balance of uh, the public's interest in how their government runs and your interest in providing good representation to your client. So there's a couple of different things at play here. Uh, Rule 1.4, the rules of professional conduct talk about communications with the client. uh, And of course, how important that is. Rule 1.6 deals with whether or not that communication can be confidential And there it says the lawyer shall not reveal information relating to the representation of a client unless the client gives informed consent. It's impliedly authorized to carry out the representation or other very specific, unique circumstances apply.
0: And then there are other areas of law, too, that come into play here, like uh, evidentiary rules and attorney-client rules and those types of things, work product rules.
1: Right, and so you have the open meeting act or open records act rather that that defines a record and it's almost anything uh, you have to to stay true to this rule of professional conduct that's an important part of ethical representation so you can't just reveal information uh, because it may be a record you may you need to look and see if it's something that's confidential uh, you also have the attorney client privilege and work product doctrine the attorney client privilege really arises out of the evidence code. So that kind of gives you a context for that and when it may be utilized to protect things from uh, being entered into evidence. Um, And of course that is held by the client and they to determine whether or not to waive that privilege. Keep in mind, your public body one one member cannot waive a privilege. Only an action of the body could, because that's held by the body. Uh, But basically, the evidence code says a communication is confidential if it is not intended to be disclosed to third persons, other than those to whom disclosure is made in furtherance of the rendition of legal services to the client or those necessary for the transmission of the communication. It does have a specific provision related to government attorneys, though, and that's something that we need to know about. There it says a communication between a public officer and its attorney is not privileged unless it concerns a pending investigation claim or action And the court determines that disclosure will seriously impair the ability of the public officer to process the claim or conduct the investigation, litigation, or proceeding in the public interest. That language may sound familiar because it's the same language you'll find in the Open Meeting Act authorizing an executive session. Uh, So that's interesting and that's a little nuanced, but the statute seemed to recognize that, yes, you know, you should keep your client matters confidential, but... If you're a government attorney representing a public body or a public officer, then that information may be treated a little bit differently. And it comes down to that balancing of what protects the city and your representation versus what is in the interest of the public body and knowing how its government operates.
0: So procedurally, if you're an elected official, you really should be listening to the advice that's being given to you by your city attorney, particularly in these types of issues. If it's an executive session or if it's an open records request and it might be an area that might be sensitive. But ultimately, it sounds like although the city can take the initial position, that is something that could be challenged in district court. And ultimately, a, a district court judge can make that call.
1: Correct. And, and I'll just say how I usually treat these things because I do want to be respectful of the, the public's need for information. We get a lot of open records requests in Norman. We have a, I don't know how unusual. I, I tend to think it's an unusually engaged citizenry, but maybe it's not, uh, especially the last two years. You know, it's been challenging for everyone. Um, so when I'm sending a communication out to council, I really do go through that analysis of is this, something that's going to be litigated. Is this a pending or potential claim or interest that we would meet in executive session about? And if it is, then I will mark it attorney-client privilege. But I'm very careful not to just mark every communication as privilege because I don't believe it would be in the end under this rule. And I think, uh, you know, some of it is probably a a record under the Open Records Act that the public is entitled to. And so that's an analysis I go through in every written communication with the council. The other piece is the discovery code and work product. So documents and things prepared in anticipation of litigation for trial or by or for another party or its representative are not discoverable. So of course someone's trying to discover my notes or my internal memos about a legal issue. They can't have those. They can't have those. No. And again, that comes down to whether or not something's going to harm your representation of the city or impact it. And so you want to be careful about that. This is a bit of a tangent, but uh, this happens to me a lot. This happened to me yesterday. Actually, I I had to tell council, please don't ask me about this while I'm sitting on the dais because... And and
0: for those that are not familiar familiar with that term, the dais, in a public meeting is what you're saying. Right.
1: right. In a public meeting, I sit on the horseshoe with the council members. We had an issue last night that uh, it's a zoning issue. And if denied, there is no doubt we will be sued. And so I sent an email and said, please do not ask for my legal opinion during the public meeting in public because it could harm our representation of the city. And keep in mind, regardless of how you feel about this development, regardless about how I feel about this development, and whether it should be granted or not, I have to represent the city. Regardless of the, of the basis of the lawsuit, I'm going to represent the city to the best of my ability. So please don't put me in that position. I've been quoted heavily in motions for summary judgment. The city attorney said, you know, don't do this. And they didn't listen. It just makes it too easy for the opposing counsel to turn that into something that harms the city's position. So that's another thing to keep in mind. If it should be a privileged communication, they should, your council member should respect that and not force you into the position where you feel like you have to get that communication in a public meeting.
2: OMAG All-Access would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. For your time, we would like to offer you the chance to win a pair of OMAG All-Access Bluetooth headphones. To winner, all you have to do is head to www.omag.org forward slash all access and click on the corresponding image at the top of the screen. The password for each episode will change. So make sure you are always up to date on the newest episode of OMAG All Access by subscribing with your favorite podcast app. The password for this episode is legal. Follow the directions on the giveaway page and you will be entered. Good luck. And
0: not that the city attorney is always right. However, uh, leaning on that legal advice, everybody should be pulling on the same rope. Okay. And so uh, I, I commend you for that, sending that email out ahead of time to the council members so at least they have some sense that for the good of the city overall, this is the direction we probably should go. There was a an article recently that was, or a, a study that was done by a Thompson, uh, Reuters that talked about some of the challenges facing government attorneys. And uh, it didn't really paint a very uh, rosy picture for those who might want to be engaging in municipal law because it talked about some of the challenges that are facing city attorneys. You may want to talk about those a little bit. In fact, I wish you would. But then at the end of that, I'd really be kind of curious, given that information and that study. Why should anybody pursue a career in municipal law? That might
1: be a question I've asked myself before. Um, (laughs) So, yes, this study was done, I think, in 2017 or 2018. And as we all know, since that time, the life of the municipal attorney has not gotten any easier. But in this study, they found that uh, six hours per week, on average, were spent just getting up to speed uh, by government attorneys. 81% of the respondents reported flat or decreased resources over the past two years. COVID has not made that any better for anyone, I can't imagine. So
0: so the six hours a a week, if I interrupt for a second, I guess the law is changing that rapidly. And with the areas of law that touch municipal government, I'm kind of wondering if six hours is, a, is a, a good enough estimate. It might
1: be a little light some days, yeah. especially in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, you practice in so many areas of the law and there's constantly changes, new statutes coming out or new cases interpreting them. It's a lot to keep up with. And then if you have councils that are, more uh, creative or, or think out of the box or want to do things that are matters of first impression that takes a lot of time as well to get up to speed on that um, and that's something we have in Norman a lot is you know being the first at things is is great but sometimes it's it creates challenges and in, in researching those issues and then the second little point I
0: interrupted you I'm sorry
1: oh, you're um, Yes. Limited resources. We're all familiar with this. I think the last time we added an attorney in Norman was in 2008. And then in 2010, we've lost that position, basically froze it for 10 years <laughs> and then finally <laughs> took it out of the budget. Uh, so definitely not adding staff. And I think that's true for most cities, uh, especially with the pandemic and the impact on sales tax in Oklahoma. Uh, it also talked about increasing workloads. Uh, again, 2018. 2019, people were anticipating higher workloads, 72%. The
0: Um, interesting point on that to me, and maybe you're getting ready to get to this, was the fact that communication is so much easier. It's almost like you're on call with cell phones and so forth 24-7. Right. Which that really runs into a work-life balance, which a lot of times is something that's attractive to people that want to go into government practice because they can maintain that work-life balance. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. It seems like that's getting more less of a selling point with uh, governmental attorney positions.
1: Absolutely. Twenty four seven access can be convenient for your officials, your city manager, your staff, and you. It also really can interfere with with whatever work life balance you're able to strike, um, because you do feel like you have to respond because everyone knows. When they text someone, their phone's probably in their hand. You know, we're checking our emails more than ever. We're we're accessible more than ever, and it creates an expectation of an immediate response. Uh, so I always encourage council members when I do orientation with them. I give them my number and say, call or text me anytime. And then I think but not on the weekends, please. <laughs> or not in the evenings. Yeah. You know, I want to be accessible, but that can cross a line where you just lose that balance altogether. And so you have to be really careful and, and that does impact your turnover. Uh, we're seeing that, I think, statewide where it's really hard to get... New attorneys interested in government practice, it doesn't pay the same as private practice and anymore the balance is not the same. Those benefits that you, you used to see with government practice are not necessarily as good as they used to be.
0: So not the rosiest picture if you're trying to recruit people into municipal law. So our time is just about up, but I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the rewards that you've experienced practicing municipal law and why you would still encourage people to look into this area.
1: Absolutely. It's it's not easy, but it's a labor of love. You're impacting your community. It's never boring. Um I've been in private practice. I've uh, worked for another government agency at the state level and this municipal practice is far more interesting, challenging and rewarding. The issues that you deal with day in and day out are unique. No two days are the same, uh, but it is an opportunity to impact your community in a positive way. And for me, at least, it's worth the extra work and the the accessibility to the client because it's, it's rewarding. It balances out for me in terms of the reward. And so I've really enjoyed the practice. I can't really imagine doing anything else at this point. <laughs> there's there's always something new to learn. I think that's what I really enjoy about it.
0: And I'll have to echo that. I, I spent uh, over 30 years in municipal law before I came to work for Omag, and definitely never a dull moment. Uh, you do have something new and interesting to work on almost every day. And some of the stuff you have to sit back and chuckle because some of the factual situations are presented with you just can't make this stuff up. Uh, people are people, and uh, you know the local level of government uh, impacts us the most and it uh, certainly keeps it exciting for those practicing in the area of municipal law. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you coming and bit, being with us again. Uh, hopefully uh, I haven't scared you off with this uh, <laughs> this meeting and we can uh, do some more. Sure. Um, uh, It's always a pleasure. Uh, Catherine is also uh, the president of the Oklahoma Association of Municipal Attorneys here and uh, has been doing a fantastic job on that. So uh, there is a website uh, that's there. It's uh, uh, dot org. And that's a a place where if you're a municipal practitioner, you can go to that website and there are several educational materials. Uh, There are several ways that you can interact with other municipal attorneys that practice in in the area of local government law. So we encourage you to check that website out. And uh, again,
2: thanks for coming.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: We hope you can take something away from this podcast that will help your city or town. You can find more information about OMAG on our website at www.omag.org or on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or ideas for a podcast topic, please send them to allaccess at omag.org. On the next episode of OMAG All Access interim management is
0: it's a unique animal in a lot of ways not the least of which is because typically the requirements they have for you and the things that they want from you are are more specific and they're they're spelled out and and they're prioritized that's been my experience i I think what they're looking for is someone to to, uh, deliver whatever necessary changes be it corrections or improvements or just just be a steady hand on the tiller while they make a, a nimble move towards new leadership.
2: This episode is copyright OMAG 2021 under the Creative Commons 4.0 Attribution, Non Commercial, Non Derivatives International License. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org.